You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Exodus. Here's Nate. In Exodus chapter 15, we get to, at least in part, observe the wonderful and beautiful song of rejoicing that the people of Israel sang to the Lord after he gave them their great victory through the Red Sea over the armies of Egypt. It says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. What a beautiful thing to be able to actually sing to the Lord. Now, of course, for these people, this was a responsive song of praise. They're simply rejoicing over what God had done in and through their lives. And really, in one sense, when you read of this, you see them singing this song to the Lord, you see this responsive rejoicing over the great thing that God had done for them at the Red Sea. One thing that we can understand today, of course, is that we as well as believers in Christ Jesus always have a reason to sing. Paul told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he said, rejoice always. And for the believer, there is always a reason to rejoice. There might be circumstances in life that cause us great sorrow and great pain. We may watch loved ones die in excruciating ways. We may grieve the pain of this world. We may be saddened by sin committed to us or by us. No, we will never rejoice over those things, but we can always rejoice in the cross of Christ, a truth that never moves, an event that is never altered. And so a believer always has a reason to sing a song of rejoicing unto the Lord. But the wonderful thing as well, and sort of a challenge to our hearts, is that the truth is, is that the people of Israel in many ways could have sung this song of rejoicing to the Lord before the victory at the Red Sea instead of only after the victory at the Red Sea. In other words, the challenge of real maturity is to sing the anticipatory song of rejoicing over what God will do before God does it. And so they sing this song to the Lord. Notice verse 1, they are celebrating the fact that he had triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he'd thrown into the sea. And this is what we, of course, celebrate and rejoice over as believers. The horse and the rider were symbolic of the Egyptian army. The force, the might, the power that had enslaved them previously As a believer, I can constantly sing and rejoice over the victory that the Lord has won for me, over that which previously enslaved me, my victory over sin 
and death because of what Jesus has done in my life. Notice as well in verse 2, part of their song they sing, The Lord is my strength and my song. This is absolutely beautiful. This particular song is going to be repeated in Psalm 118 and in Isaiah chapter 12. This song of Moses will actually be sung as well in Revelation chapter 15. So this song would be sung now when they're delivered from Egypt. It would be sung when delivered from Babylon. And it would be sung when the Gentile nations began to turn to Christ. And it would be sung even in the last age, the last and final era. But what a beautiful picture. God as your song. The Lord is my strength and my song. You know, I've just found in my life that singing to the Lord is a powerful weapon in my life. It can lift my heart. It can remind my stubborn mind. It can shift me and dislodge the wrong beliefs and the dark beliefs or the wrong perspectives in many ways more quickly than anything else. To be able to sing a song unto the Lord. And they say, the Lord is our strength and the Lord is our song. He is the melody of our hearts. Now in verse 3, they go on in this song and they say some interesting things about the Lord. They say in verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And here's why. Verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So one of the things that they announce about the Lord is they say, Lord, the Lord is a man of war. Now, in one sense, all they're simply saying is, you know, God fought for us there. <laughs> As we went through the Red Sea, we had no way to defend ourselves. We had no way to fight against the chariots of Pharaoh's army. We had no way to give ourselves the victory. We were up against that Red Sea. We were in a difficult spot. The terrain had boxed us in. But you know, in the midst of all of it, God was so faithful and he fought for us. Let's call it like it is. The Lord is a man of war. But in another sense, this was a fundamental concept of God for the people of Israel. I mean, as they went out, they would have to see God fighting for them. They would see him fight for them against the Amalekites. They would see him fight for them against the Canaanites in the distant future. They would watch God winning for them battles over kings to the east of the Jordan River. And so time and time again, they would have to know of God as one who would fight for them. And I think as well, we need to understand today, as believers, that the Lord is a man of war. Have you, have you ever thought of Jesus as a man of war? Well, if you haven't, I'd encourage you, you should. Uh, you think of what he was doing there upon the cross. This was a full-on frontal attack and declaration of war against sin, against the devil and the principalities and powers of darkness and against death itself so the cross itself was war in one sense you could say it like this god's love is a violent love 
He violently wars for his people. And of course, this love should be replicated in our lives. We get after it when it comes to sanctification and prayer and protection of others and all of that. The Lord is a man of war. Now beyond that, just thinking of war, I should mention, war is a complex subject. It's one of those areas that is dangerous to place inside of just a simple cookie cutter kind of box. I'm for it or I'm against it. There are unjust wars. There are righteous wars. And the Lord himself, we see here in verse 3, a man of war. Now, in verse 6, in this song, they sing, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. They repeat the phrase, your right hand, twice. And as you move through this song, that is sort of the organization of it. There will be a few different areas where they repeat a phrase multiple times, and it sort of indicates that section of the song. And here they're extolling the right hand of God, the mighty power of God himself. Now, verse 7, it says, In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. This is a very intense song that they are singing. At the blast, verse 8, of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. That means that they became like walls of ice almost, the Red Sea, as God blew there and opened up a pathway for them. Verse 9, they sing and say, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew, verse 10, with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. So, they just are recounting in very figurative, poetic, beautiful, majestic language in song the great event that had just occurred. And first of all, in verse 8, they talk about the blast of the nostrils of the Lord in piling up the waters, you know, sort of parting the waters. But then in verse 10, they extol him for blowing with your wind and the sea covered them. So they say, you know, you blew and caused it to open up, and you blew and caused it to close upon them. You opened the way and you closed the way, and both of them were equally glorious to the people of Israel. And in verse 11, they say, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Again, a repeated phrase, who is like you? And it indicates a worship of the Lord regarding the uniqueness of God over all other false gods. This question, who is like you, O Lord, is actually repeatedly asked in the Psalms. A bunch of different Psalms mention this question. And it's a great way to worship the Lord. It's basically a, a way in which you're saying, Lord, there is no one like you. You are the incomparable God. And I've never met anyone like you. I've never known anyone like you. And all the false gods that people worship, they can't even come close to representing or even trying to be who you are. Lord, there is none like you. And of course, in their position, 
they could say this in a unique and literal sense. They'd seen the false gods of the Egyptians destroyed left and right. And so when they say, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, they indeed have a special perspective of God's great victory for them and the difference between the God of Israel and the God of the Egyptians. And, you know, there's just power in setting your mind upon the ability of God, the strength of God. I was thinking the other day of one of my favorite passages in Scripture, the book of Nehemiah. Thinking there in Nehemiah chapter 1 of the time that Nehemiah heard of the walls broken down, the gates burned with fire, and he cried out to the Lord in prayer. And one of the first things out of his mouth is he began to talk about the Lord, great and awesome in power, in heaven. He got a perspective and a picture of the eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent strength of God. And that perspective was so necessary for Nehemiah with everything that he was going to need to do. He would rebuild the city, basically. And in order to do such an incredible thing, he needed to have a very big picture of the might, the power, the ability of God. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. I don't know how you might be listening at this moment. But I'm willing to bet that there is a task, a responsibility, a duty that's in front of you in your life that is much bigger than you are, much stronger than you are, and that you must have strong consciousness of the power and the ability of God in order to get that task accomplished. Fixate your mind upon this. They asked, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? Now in verse 13, they go on in their song and they say, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Now this is fascinating because in their song, they start naming other people who have heard of this great victory and they start actually calling them out geographically. And saying, look, they've all heard of this great victory that you have given to us. And it would have been very difficult for them not to have heard of it. Not just at the Red Sea, but also in each one of the plagues. And finally in the 10th plague, the Passover itself, there would have been this knowledge of the destruction that was going on down there to the south in Egypt. And so they name these different groups of people. They say, verse 14, first in Philistia. And they probably mention them first because they are closest in proximity to all of these events. They say also in Edom, which was, you know, the, these were descendants of distant cousins of the Israelites in one sense. The descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And so they were located south east of the Dead Sea, and the Moabites, who were located just north of Edom, he says, all of these people have heard. And they say in verse 16, continuing this song and theme, terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. 
till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So, of course, as they're singing this song, they are in a moment of extreme confidence before the Lord. And one of the things that they profess, verse 16, about all those nations, they say, terror and dread fall upon them. In other words, they were confident that God's reputation had gone out to that entire region. And really what they're saying is that they had seen their victory over Egypt as victory over all of the other nations. And, you know, they were really dead on with this proclamation. It wasn't for another 40 years because of some events that were yet to unearth and discover their rebellion against the Lord. But 40 years later, when they actually would arrive in Canaan, you might remember that Joshua sent a couple of spies into Jericho and Rahab the harlot mentioned to these spies that there was a great fear in the hearts of the people because of three events. The victory over the Egyptians at the Red Sea, the victory over Sihon, and the victory over Og, the Amorite kings. And their hearts melted away because of these great victories that God had won for the people of Israel. Don't let the devil fool you for a moment. There is terror and dread within his heart at Jesus Christ, at the God that you love and worship and serve. He trembles at the voice of God. And they say to the Lord there in verse 16 as well, they say, Lord, they're going to be like stone until your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Another repeated phrase, till your people, O Lord, pass by. And this indicates worship regarding the faithfulness of God in delivering them to the promised land. They're basically confessing it in advance, saying, Lord, you are going to get us there. You're going to conquer our enemy and cause them to be fearful until we pass by and you bring us into that purchased land of possession that you are giving to us. Just a beautiful confidence before and inside of the people. Just a great belief in the Lord. Unfortunately, this faith would waver at a moment in the future. They say in verse 17 as well, I must point out, they say, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. And I think in one sense, this highlights their confidence. You know, you're going to bring us in, you're going to plant us. But also, there seems to be a prophetic element here because they talk about your own mountain, which I believe to be a prophetic word concerning Jerusalem, which they didn't even know about yet at this point. But they would be planted on that mountain eventually. The temple would be built. Worship would happen at the epicenter of the nation the city of Jerusalem. For when the horses, verse 19, of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Verse 20, it says, Then Miriam the prophetess 
the sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So the general song of Moses is over with, and now we get the song of Miriam. And it tells us in verse 20, it gives her the title, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron. Now, this is a fascinating title for her for a few different reasons. First of all, she's called the sister of Aaron, which is curious because, of course, she's also the sister of Moses, as well as the sister of Aaron, who is the brother of Moses. But it's sort of as if God is saying, listen, she doesn't really rank in Moses's category any longer, but she does rank in Aaron's category. And of course, at this time, they were an older bunch. Moses was the baby of the bunch at 80 years old. Aaron was 83 years old, according to Exodus 7, verse 7. And because we know that Miriam was a child who was grown up enough to follow Moses in the basket as a baby and converse with the princess of Egypt. She maybe was a 10, 11, 12-year-old girl at that point. So she's likely, if Moses is 80, in her 90s at this point. The other thing that's so interesting is that she's called a prophetess. And she's the first female prophetess mentioned in Scripture. Micah, in his prophecy, in chapter 6, verse 4, concerning the Lord, he said, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. It seems as if Miriam had a significant leadership role there in Israel, and she was a female. Now, of course, the New Testament gives us clarity, and really, Genesis to Revelation, we have clarity concerning the leadership roles of men amongst God's people. But still, it's very fascinating to see this woman in a significant and wonderful leadership position amongst the nation. So she leads, for a moment here, and she leads a group of women out with tambourines and dancing. They are singing and crying out and blessing the Lord. Just a wonderful celebratory time in Israel. What might it mean that Miriam was a prophetess? You know, of course, prophecy can mean a couple of different things, foretelling the word of God, but also forthtelling the word of God. In other words, you're de just declaring God's word, but sometimes in a non-predictive sense. But to foretell, it means that you are speaking in a predictive sense. And it does appear that there were those who had this kind of gift of ecstatic utterance before the Lord and predicting and prophesying things that would come to pass amongst the people. There would be a time later in Numbers chapter 11 where they would come to Moses and say, hey, listen, we saw Eldad and Medad. We found them prophesying in the camp. It seems to have been a slightly spontaneous kind of thing. And Moses actually did not object at that particular moment, he wished that everyone would be able to prophesy and be used by the Lord in this way. And of course, Miriam's song was a beautiful song. Sing to the Lord, for he's triumphed gloriously. The horse 
and his rider he is thrown into the sea. There would never be a moment that they couldn't sing this song. Plenty of moments they wouldn't sing it, but never a moment that they couldn't sing this song. They'd always be able to look back at this significant moment of victory in their lives. Just like us, we can look back to the cross. We can see that significant moment of victory in our lives. If there's nothing else to sing of, we can sing that. And verse 22, it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came, verse 23, to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Now, this is going to be a very typical pattern with Israel and Moses. They set out from the Red Sea. They weren't called to linger there, but to move out. They had a great victory, but now they're going to be tested. They go three days out into the wilderness with no water. Their supply is running low. They're beginning to grow thirsty. And they go through this trial, and rather than rejoicing and singing the song that they had just sung outside of the Red Sea, here they cry out to Moses, and they complain to him. But actually, the way it all unfolded is that they are going three days with no water, and they come to Mara, and they try to drink that water, but they cannot drink it, for it is bitter. I imagine hundreds and thousands of people running to this water, the rumors beginning to spread that there is water, and then only to discover that this water is undrinkable in nature. And bitter to their taste, but unhealthy for them to drink. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Something you thought would bring you refreshment that brings you bitterness, a relationship, a career, a ministry even. We are never disappointed with Jesus, but quite often disappointed with other things. It is good to worship the Lord and put our hope fully and completely upon him. And so in verse 24, it says that they grumbled against Moses and driven to despair. You know, they are complaining and bitter and and frustrated. And so Moses cries to the Lord. The pattern is set here. The people complain or grumble and Moses goes straight to the Lord. And the Lord showed Moses, verse 25, a log, which must be symbolic of the cross throws it into the water, and the water became drinkable. You know, so often the cross, when it is put into a situation, takes that which is bitter and turns it into something sweet. I think of the little tiny book of Philemon, where a slave named Onesimus and a former master named Philemon, both believers who had had a good relationship previously, but Onesimus, before he'd been a believer, ran away. They were at odds with one another. And Paul encouraged them to get together over the blood of Jesus, the cross of Christ. And it was only the cross that took a very bitter betrayal and very bitter situation and made it into a sweet situation. Verse 24, the end of it, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. 
saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So a little foretaste of the covenant that was to come. If you will, I will. And he's testing them now. And he reveals himself in verse 26 and says, I am the Lord, your healer, Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals you. And after that event, he takes them to a place of refuge, 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, a place called Elim, where they rested for a season. Remember and sing of the great victory of Jesus for you. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.